Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Good evening, ma'am, and welcome to Hannibal's. Is this your first time with us? Yes, it is. We do things a little differently here. We serve people. But don't all restaurants serve people? Not the way we do. Okay, uh, tell me about the ravioli. Excellent choice. His name was Jimmy Ravioli, and he's oven-baked with crispy Yukon gold potatoes, fava beans, and a nice Chianti. Do you have anything vegetarian? Do you mean someone who was a vegetarian? We do have Alan, who was a macrobiotic flexitarian, and we're serving him today with braised fennel and polenta. Was he free-range? Totally. He was a jogger. Uh, joggers are tough. I'm not sure that's what I want. As we say here at Hannibal's, YOLO Atway. I'm sorry, what's that mean? You only live once, and then we eat you. Huh. Well, how much is the jogger? Twenty-six ninety-five. Twenty-six. That's outrageous. Seriously? You're eating at a cannibal restaurant, and you think the prices are outrageous? All right, that's a fair point. Today on the show, our continuing fascination, revulsion, and occasional amusement with people who eat people. And now he didn't know what to make of the new intern, so he settled on spaghetti sauce. Colin McEnroe. Okay, it's not true that we eat the interns. We don't even have any interns because we eat them. Uh, all right, so we're going to be talking about cannibalism today. We'll talk about it in the real world and in the fictional world. Towards the end of the show, you'll even meet a person who was prosecuted, not for cannibalism, but for fantasizing uh, about cannibalism and talking as if he were maybe just about to engage in cannibalism, uh, somebody who was prosecuted and then ultimately freed. Uh, anyway, well, that story is to come. So we're going to start in culture, but then we're going to move back, uh, back into history, back into even the Bible, where cannibalism comes up maybe more often than you think, uh, or than you might think. Uh, so let me tell you who's here with us today. Uh, joining us by phone is Bill Shutt, a professor of biology at LIU Post and research associate at the American Museum of Natural History, where they do not have a cannibalism diorama. That was a different show we did anyway. He's the author of Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. Uh, and Charles Bromesco, uh, freelance film and TV critic, writer for sites including Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and The Verge, uh, and uh, author of the article, We're Living in the Golden Age of On-Screen Cannibalism. He's joining us from the NPR studios in uh, New York City. So, Charles, let's begin with you then. Uh, make the case for the idea that we're living in the golden age of on-screen cannibalism. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think it's uh, more than just the fact that we're seeing an influx of uh, entertainment featuring cannibals, but it's more a reinterpretation of what that type means about examining the motives behind cannibalism, the ramifications that it has on the people who practice it, whether you know this is a um, a willing uh, process or something that they do against their better judgment, sort of trying to resist it. Uh, we're seeing altogether a more uh, nuanced approach to the material, uh, and and it's being stretched in a bunch of different tonal directions as well. It's um, being mined for comedy on Netflix's series uh, The Santa Clarita Diet, 
and uh, it's it's also pervaded the world of art film. There's a fine film called Raw by a director named Julia Docanau that came out earlier this year about a young girl's coming of age with uh, cannibalism used almost as a metaphor for uh, the tumultuous uh, urges of adolescence. And so uh, let's pause with one of those because I think that there's maybe the the fulcrum that we're looking for there. So the Santa Clarita Diet, Diet, which I've watched a little bit of, is a black comedy uh, featuring Drew Barrymore and Timothy Oliphant. Um, and the, they are real estate agents, which I think might actually be significant. But they're real estate agents, and she's developed this thing where she doesn't look like a zombie. She just looks like her normal self, except that she has developed this appetite for human flesh, which you're she's shown graphically and bloodily consuming. It's like the human flesh eating equivalent of a pie eating contest or something. I mean, she's just got, you know, blood dripping down her chin and all this kind of stuff. And and so um, this is a change, and we'll get to maybe where that we'll see change happen. But, but Charles, this is a change in the sense that the cannibal isn't depicted as the other, quote, T, uh, capital T, capital O, right? The, the, cap, the, the cannibal here is a real estate agent who just happens to have gone off the rails in one particular area of her life. And it's funny because obviously it transgresses against this very basic taboo, but it's not funny in in a way like, look how completely weird this person is, right? Some of the normalness of her is is somehow or other part of of the viewpoint of the show. Yeah, absolutely. It's um that's the idea is the comedy comes from the show's willingness to take this material seriously and imagine how a real person, a recognizable person, a friend, a neighbor and a wife would handle being placed in a in a situation that is to us fanciful. Uh the show, you know, she at the same time is very drawn to the process of eating flesh. I think it's not uh, gratuitous that they have all, you know, as you say, the blood dripping down the chin, you know, pie-eating caliber feeding frenzies because that communicates the full intensity of, of her need to do this. And so you realize that she's not, you know, this other, as you described, she's not so much a monster as much uh, a person, a person like you or me, but a person who's plagued by uh, a desire that she can't control, you know, whether whether that uh, speaks to addiction, that's uh, a ready analog there, but uh, anyone's familiar with having feelings that they can't control or feelings that they wish, you know, they weren't having. This uh, amplifies those and exaggerates them and and takes them to comic, grisly extremes. All right. So let's hear a little bit from that show. This will be uh, Drew Barrymore as uh, Sheila Hammond, the realtor. Uh, She's being rudely hit on by a guy who pays the price for his pushiness. Sheila is going to uh, bite off his fingers and eat them. How about this? We have some fun. You said you're all about fun, and I don't say anything to your lame husband, or we don't. And I tell him we screwed four times last night in my Beamer. Your unwillingness to take no for an answer has made me feel sexy and desirable. Uh-huh. 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 I know. Weirdest foreplay ever. You hate my fingers. I do not hate your fingers. Hate. Hate my fingers. All right. I think that's Nathan Fillion as the um, guy who gets his fingers bitten. So, uh, you know, Bill, should I want to add you to this conversation? Because I think one of the big departures we're seeing, and it 
predates this particular moment, as we will discuss. But if you think about the way that popular culture might have depicted the can a cannibal, say, 50 years ago, um, and it was particularly true in, say, Warner Brothers Looney Tune cartoons, where there was this kind of crypto-racist, um, you know, trope almost of white explorers being dropped into this big black cooking pot, and there would be gathered around them uh, African-looking people with bones in their noses and stuff. Like that's what a cannibal was, right? Uh, the cannibal was a, a, a way of describing a completely alien culture where people did things that we don't do, which, as we'll talk about a little bit more in the second segment, tracks pretty well with the way that we tend to demonize societies uh, or subcultures that we want to dominate in other ways. Um, but this notion, Bill, that the cannibal might be somebody living next door to us, it, it's a very different kind of depiction and argument about cannibalism. I, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I certainly think it's a new take on, uh, on an old theme. And as you said, classically, when you, when, you, know, when you hear the word cannibalism, you have these, this, these knee-jerk reactions. And, and you certainly don't think about the person next door, a realtor, or, uh, or, or you know, somebody that you might sit down uh, to a regular meal with. Uh, so, that, yeah, this is, uh, this is really sort of a, uh, in, from what I can tell, it, it, it's a new take on, on this. So, uh, I, no, I think we know when the pivot happened, probably. And, and Charles, it really is the, the introduction, I would say, of Hannibal Lecter. Uh, in Silence of the Lambs, but he's also in a whole bunch of other, other things, uh, both uh, precede and, and come after. I think Brian Cox was the original uh, Hannibal Lecter. Um, but anyways, we see this guy who, far from being this you know primitivized uh, being, is like smarter than we are and kind of louche and, and, and appealing in certain ways, uh, witty uh, and possessed of a peculiar moral code, but a moral code nonetheless. He can do horrible things to people, but he doesn't like other people doing horrible things to people. So in, in uh, and I guess, Charles, I'm just kind of wondering what, what was going on there. I mean, one argument would be that we just kind of domesticated all of the ghouls, that if you can have a louche entertaining vampire, you can have a louche entertaining cannibal, etc. Yeah, well, I think um, the longevity of the Hannibal Lecter cycle of films speaks to the enduring appeal of this character is that at the center is this uh, very beguiling contradiction that he does, uh, he's defined by this act that we consider savage, the eating of flesh, which he often does um, as, as frequently in a savage manner as he does in a, in a refined manner. You know, he talks about eating the liver with fava beans and a Chianti, which is, you know, an extremely tasteful pairing, but then you see in Red Dragon and, and in Silence of the Lambs, uh, he's also capable of great violence and great savagery. And so seeing this, uh, seeing this lifestyle made sort of sophisticated, made almost seductive by the way that Lecter carries himself, he, he almost um, wears this taste for flesh as a sign of refinement. And so this character begs the question, you know, what is it that separates a sane person from uh, from a cannibal is just the willingness to do so, and and Hannibal Lecter makes the very troubling suggestion that when you reach a higher plane of morality, that's how he considers himself, at least, that uh, the distinction between eating animal flesh and eating human flesh falls away, and it's just a matter of simple taste. So, Bill Shutt, if our if our villains and our horror figures are about our anxieties. Um, you know, our anxieties are a little bit different. And I, I think you can make the same argument with vampires. Vampires used to be Eastern European 
Uh, you know, and, and they said things like, listen to them, children of the night. Uh, and there was this sense that they existed in this very, once again, capital O, other place. This other place. They weren't us. We're not vampires. They're vampires. And, and gradually vampires kind of crept into our neighborhoods and began to talk much more like we talk and look much more like we look. And and I, I you know, I don't necessarily need to construct some kind of uber cultural theory here right now, but but. It seems like all of this is more about our notion that we're not comfortable with each other, you know, that 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 the people that we're around uh, are potentially I mean, even if you think about The Walking Dead, ultimately what becomes scary in The Walking Dead is not so much the zombies, but the other people who have survived the zombie apocalypse. They're like worse than any zombie. It's like we're more frightened of each other these days than we are of some weird thing that lives somewhere else. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, I, think that... I mean, I don't. What, what's the question there? I'm not. Well, I, I guess I'm not sure, Bill. I guess, Bill, I'm wondering. It, it, does it seem, anyway, as though we're focusing our anxieties in a different place? But if we make cannibals into someone who is basically, you know, an exaggerated version of our most bullying college professor, um, you know, are we in fact sort of saying something about where our anxieties are right now? Yeah, I, I, I suppose. I mean. Uh, as I said, you know, this is sort of a new take on an on an old theme, and um, and and uh, it it's uh, innovative, and um, yeah, I think that cannibals and uh, and vampires come in and out of style, and and they're sort of uh, you know you know twenty thirty years ago it was vampires, and all of a sudden they got really sexy, and uh, and now you're seeing a slightly different take on uh, on, on cannibalism. All right, let's uh, hear a little bit. Uh, from Hannibal. This is from the actual the TV series Hannibal because people could not get enough Hannibal Lecter. This is Hannibal throwing a dinner party at which he serves a paralyzed colleague. Sorry about this if you're on your lunch hour right now. A paralyzed colleague, his own cooked leg, explaining that it's practical use uh, of an otherwise wasted limb. Here we go. Clay roasted thigh and canoe cut marrow bone. Should I cough? I think you already have. Your legs are no good to you anymore. You've got a T4 fracture of the vertebra. This is a far more practical use for those limbs. You intend me to be my own last supper? Yes. How does one politely refuse a dish in circumstances such as these? One doesn't. The tragedy is not to die, Abel, but to be wasted. So, Charles Bromesco, is Hannibal also just a little bit, and I haven't seen Raw. I'm not quite sure I'm going to see Raw. Uh, but is Hannibal um, a little bit of just the insufferable foodie as well, this kind of notion that, like, ultimately there's going to be a food trend for everything? Yeah, well, I think, uh, at least on the show, that's ultimately Hannibal's undoing, is that he is, you know, very haughty, very, uh, you know, set in his own manners and, that manifests as an arrogance, uh, which eventually, you know, threatens to undo him at all these different points on the show. Um, and so the extent to which that speaks to this real world culture of, you know, food elitism, however you want to call it, foodism, um, there's definitely a lot of that there about uh, food manifesting as a, as a social mark of merit, uh, about 
almost you know, conspicuous consumption in, in the most literal sense in, in what you are consuming. Uh, Hannibal isn't on Instagram, but it's not hard to imagine him taking photos of his elaborately prepared dishes to, to show them off. That's why he always loves having guests over is because he wants to show how uh, eating food and, and more specifically the way he prepares it, which is very meticulous, as you hear, you know, he carves. Uh, that's, that's a sign that he is superior, at least in his own estimation. So, uh, Bill, you know, somewhere on Hannibal Lecter's family tree is Norman Bates. Now, we don't see Norman Bates, uh, you know, making uh, human thighs in clay pots. Uh, but Norman Bates actually also has a, a more real-life antecedent, right? Uh, somebody named yeah, uh, Ed Gein. Yeah, that would be Ed Gein, who was uh, a famous murderer and a necrophile back in Wisconsin in 1957. And when Robert Block wrote the novella Psycho in 1958, he really sort of downplayed the mutilation and, and cannibalism, and he concentrated on that mother fixation. And uh, Alfred Hitchcock purchased, sent his people out to purchase every book he could find. So when he decided he was going to make that into a movie, he didn't want anyone to know the ending. Um, but yeah, so there is this tie-in between uh, b- between uh, Ed Gein and, uh, and our anti-hero in Psycho. Um, the other thing I'm wondering about, Charles, and once again, um, I haven't seen Raw, which is the new French cannibal film that's making the rounds of festivals and seems to be visceral enough to be inducing various kinds of fainting attacks and vomiting and God knows what else. But um, it's also the sort of sense that, well, we want to be afraid of something and people who make scary movies and horrifying movies want to be able to horrify people. And and after a while, you've seen zombies do everything that they're going to do and you've seen vampires in every possible configuration. Is some of this just we're kind of looking around or, or creators looking around for something that still will make people swoon? I think a lot of it is a, a matter of horror being cyclical. I think that when trends, you know, trends arise and then they peak and then they ebb <clears throat> and then it falls to uh, writers and directors to sort of move in, in the other direction. You know, we spoke about vampires and how they were sort of uh, romanticized near the tail end of the 2000s and the 2010s with Twilight and everything. And so then vampires are, are primed for sort of a return to their monstrous origins more than the way they've been domesticated. And I think the same goes for cannibals, is that after all these years of considering them as barbarians, uh, returning them to a sort of civility is to us very chilling right now. But I think as soon as audiences start to recognize that as the norm, uh, it'll be a very smart filmmaker who realizes the time to go in the opposite direction has come and, and bring someone who is not recognizable to us, who is almost frightening in how unrecognizable recognizable they are. Um, so, uh, and so Charles, while we're on this topic, um, this is, we've named a few of these things. Um, there's another movie called The Bad Batch. I actually, first of all, should say that I found, just looking around, I found that Trey Parker was involved in a movie called uh, Cannibal the Musical, which predates uh, things like the Book of Mormon. It's like a, it's a, basically a Donner Party type uh, of musical, which only somebody from South Park would probably think of to do. Uh, so tell us about the Bad Batch. Is is this a new film or or one in the recent yeah, past? Um, 
This is an upcoming film. It's uh, it's coming out this summer, I think, uh, August, I believe, or maybe late July. Um, but I, I managed to catch this at the Toronto Film Festival back in September. Um, and cannibalism does take a sort of central role in that film as well. It focuses on a dystopian society near the Texas-Mexico border where undesirable figures are sort of deposited in this vast almost desert prison and kind of just left to their own devices. Um, and so this colony called the Bad Batch uh, forms, and these are people who, through virtue of necessity, have begun to eat human flesh as well, which goes back to, you know, among the most notorious cannibals ever were the Donner Party, who were all, you know, they embarked as regular people, but when supplies were scarce and they were on the skids in terms of having food to eat, uh, they were as, as savage as the situation called for. Uh, and, and The Bad Batch speaks to that as well in its, in its depiction of cannibalism. It shows that these are people who have adapted as necessary and just incorporated into their lives what they have to do to survive. So Charles Bromesco, first of all, thank you so much for talking to us. A freelance a film and TV critic, writes for sites including Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, The Verge, and more, author of the article, We're Living in the Golden Age of On-Screen Cannibalism. Uh, definitely uh, read that for other insights. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. The, Charles has given us a perfect uh, segue to a longer conversation with Bill Shutt. We're going to talk a little bit about that notion that, yes, one thing that happens is that when, when normal people have nothing else to eat, guess what they do? <laughs> what is that? It's fop, finest in the shop. And we have some shepherds, five peppered with actual shepherd on top. And I've just begun. He's a politician so oily. He's served with a doily and one. Put it on a bum. Well, you never know if it's going to run. Try the fryer, fry the dryer. No, the clergy is really too coarse and too mealy. That actor that's compactor. Yes, and always arrives overdone. All right, we're back talking about cannibalism. As only this show can, I think. Or maybe not. Maybe other shows do. Who knows? Terry Gross may have something like this coming up. Uh, Bill Schutz is with us right now, professor of biology at LIU Post and research associate at the American Museum of Natural History. He's the author of Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. So, uh, Bill, we're going to talk about uh, places where maybe cannibalism is a little bit more normalized, places in history where uh, it's been uh, intentionally engaged in for various reasons, places on the globe where maybe it's not so weird. But I, I, maybe we should start by putting one fundamental premise on the table and, and tell me if you disagree. But it just seems like anybody, any group of people, I mean, on the one hand, cannibalism is this terrible taboo, that place where absolutely nobody should go. Jeffrey Dahmer is the most horrible person in the world. He's worse than other serial killers because he ate people. That makes it worse somehow. There's sort of that taboo. But then there's, you know, this understanding, or maybe it's an understanding we don't have, that we're all, you know, 10 years of bad food supply away from eating other people. Every world famine in history is accompanied by documentation, usually, of cannibalism, whether it's China in 1960 after the Great Leap Forward, Russia in 1921, Jamestown, you know, the, the original European arrivals in America, Ireland during the famine, right? I mean, people. one reason people eat other people is when there's nothing else to eat. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that survival cannibalism spans this uh, cultural taboo that, that we've had in the West probably for around 2,000 years. You know, when 
when when there's nothing else to eat, it's it's not a it's not really a matter of choice at a certain point. Your body is in a sense cannibalizing itself, and and you come to the the point where in this extreme stage of starvation, where you are either going to consume the dead or or feed the dead to your to your kids or, or to your loved ones, or, or you're going to perish. And, and so at that point, the choice is made. It's not something that you can sort of uh, plan out. So there's that. And, and then we have to sort of talk a little bit about our own nature, too. So keeping in mind, Bill, that uh, I've done my 23andMe profile, and I, am, uh, I have uh, more Neanderthal DNA than 72% of the population, <laughs> and I'm very sensitive about microaggression. Um, there's this notion that maybe one of the places we get this whole cannibal thing for, is from our Neanderthal forebears. Where do you come down on that one? Yeah, I I don't think that that's the case. I, I think that before we had, um, you know, I believe that ancient humans cannibalized when necessary. It might have been part of their culture once that started to develop. It might have been a funerary rite. Uh, it might have been a way to deal with uh, with 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 your enemy after you killed him. Uh, but I don't believe that it's that it's uh, you know something that was necessarily passed down by the Neanderthals. There is evidence in several different ancient human uh, societies uh, that that cannibalism took place, whether it was cannibalism because of a, a, a lack of food or uh, whether it, it it had some other you know whether it was culinary cannibalism. You know I don't think that a lot of these a lot of these folks back then were worried about. Uh, about Western taboos because they didn't exist yet. So when you had meat in front of you, whether it was human or uh, or you know from something that you killed, the, these types of questions probably didn't come to mind. It was just a matter of well, there's this meat. What are we going to do with it? And uh, and 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 often I imagine it was eaten. Um, yeah, no, actually, in my Neanderthal family, there's a joke that was passed down for generations. It was like when a Neanderthal says, you don't like your mother-in-law, just eat the noodles. Um, all right, so um, we have to talk about the Bible. Uh, you don't think about the Bible as a place uh, where there's a lot of cannibalism talk, but in a way you'd be wrong, I mean, particularly in the—we'll come to communion in a second, but um, in, in the New Testament, there's mostly, I would sort of say, talk in the form of admonition more than, hey, you're a bunch of cannibals. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there are really two things going on in the, in the Bible, and one is, as you mentioned before, transubstantiation, when you talk about communion. But, but the other is, is your basic siege cannibalism, where you have uh, the cities of Jerusalem and Samaria that are surrounded, uh, there's no food, and now you are, uh, you know, you could, there, there are descriptions of possible cannibalism occurring within these cities. Right. But it's I mean, in whether it's usually one of the prophets or the voice of God saying, if you don't mm -hmm. change your ways, repent, whatever, this is what's going to happen. Right. So, I mean, it really is kind of held up as a very undesirable outcome. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 you know, it's a warning and, and you have an opportunity to divert your your life's course so that you avoid that particular eventuality. Okay, so then we get into the New Testament. We have the complex notion of transubstantiation, which is the argument that the, the wafer and the blood are not simply symbols, but in fact, true manifestations of the flesh of, and blood uh, of Christ. Anecdotally, it's been even said that missionaries in other places have found it uh, I mean, uh, contrary to all of our stereotypes that, that people in other cultures have said, you eat your God? Wait a minute. Why would you eat your God? That's very weird. So uh, w w 
tell me what, where you, how you, how you process the notion of Holy Communion through the lens that you're using. Well, I mean, a lot of this starts back in um, 1215 when Pope Innocent III basically said that the consecrated elements of the Eucharist were literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ. And this got a lot of people, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people thought this was really strange um, because uh, Jesus had spoken and, in, 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 you know, he had used symbolism before, I am the gate or I am the true vine, and I'm sure a lot of, not many people thought that he was talking literally, but here was an instance where what, what seems to be a, a symbolic uh, ritual was, was basically uh, determined not to be. And, and up until this very day, you know, in 1965, Pope Paul VI reconfirmed the fact that, that this was not a symbolic event, that you were literally, uh, during communion, you were literally consuming the body and blood of, of Jesus Christ. And, and anybody who believed that it was a symbolic uh, event or ritual uh, w- was not really a good Roman Catholic, for example. Right. So in, in this approach avoidance, I, I don't know if you can draw a direct line from one thing to the other, but you know, we get to the time of the Restoration. So there's kind of two things going on at the time of the Restoration. First of all, there's the beginning of the exploration of the so-called new world. And so tales are coming back of these uh, horrible primitive tribes who do all kinds of things that they're not supposed to do, including perhaps uh, acts of cannibalism. Isn't that awful? Look at those people in Brazil. Look what they're doing. And at the same time, in, in a way that is a little reminiscent of communion, there's this uh, sudden interest in eating shall we say, parts of the king. I mean, in, in the in the span of the Restoration, the beheading of Charles I and the subsequent rise eventually of Charles II, there's this whole thing that goes on. Tell us about that thing. Well, I mean, look, I think what you really have to do is go back and look at, how, to me, the important thing was how cannibalism was, how, how the taboo that developed 2,000 years ago was really used as a bludgeon, as as explorers like Christopher Columbus came to the New World, saw these people, described them as innocent and, 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 and worthy of becoming good Christians, then when he couldn't find any gold, um, looked for another resource. That resource turned out to be humans. That Queen Isabella told them, look, if, if these people are not, are, are not cannibals, you, you can't enslave them. But if they are, then you can do all bets are off. You can do whatever you want. And, and you know, this to me and, and, and the work that I did with this book really showed that, that an, an important result of the, of the cannibalism taboo that we have in the West was the fact that, we, that, that many people starting in the Mediterranean, you know, started, starting in the Caribbean, rather, and then into Mexico, South America, Africa, used the term cannibalism um, as a way to differentiate, to, de- to delineate themselves from anyone else, uh, any other group. Um, and resistance and cannibalism became sort of synonymous terms. And, and that, to me, was the important thing. You know, whether people ate their kings and thought that that was, you know, that, that, you know, that, that, that was really, in my book, secondary to, to really uh, to what was happening to, uh, to people across the world as, as this term and as, the, as this practice was, was, 
whether they performed it or not, was, was, was really used to destroy them. Right. It's kind of shorthand, right? Uh, it, rather than a detailed explanation of why it's going to be okay to enslave these people, ship them back here, uh, separate them from their families, risk their health, expose them to diseases they have no immune system for, take all their stuff. Um, you could go into a long chapter and verse about this. But if they're cannibals, well, case closed, right? Right. Yeah, it's pestilence. You're not, you're not talking about humans. So you could hunt them. You could destroy their culture. You could enslave them. Anything you want. But you could take their property. You could ultimately just completely destroy their culture, and it wouldn't matter because these were not human beings. But meanwhile, um, just back to the Restoration briefly, there was this notion, particularly when somebody was beheaded, like Charles I, uh, that if you could get some of the blood that came out right then, yeah. it had all kinds of medicinal values. And Yeah, you know, and, and this, this to me was one of the most surprising things. Uh, when I wrote this book, uh, well, first of all, I'm a zoologist, so I spent a lot of time working on, uh, on uh, looking at cannibalism across the animal kingdom, and I was surprised at how widespread it was for, for reasons that don't have anything to do with a lack of food or, or, or cramped captive conditions. But the real surprise when I started to work on, 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 the human, on human cannibalism was just how prevalent it was um, it, in Europe for hundreds of years as medicinal cannibalism. And, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, blood, just about any body part that you can, that, that you can envision from the, the skeleton to, to viscera, liver, uh, fat, was, was used in medical preparations for hundreds of years, starting in the Middle Ages, throughout the Renaissance, and lasting right up until the uh, 20th century. 1908, Merck uh, Index had, had mumia, ground-up mummy, listed as a medicinal, uh, as you know, having medicinal value. So, that blew me away, given the, right. given the Western taboo. That was incredibly surprising to me. Well, and I think... Yeah, and I think obviously they'd have ways of differentiating, saying, "Well, no, we're not doing it that way. We're doing it this way." It's it's really, you know, it's a tincture. Make it disappear. I mean, you don't read about that very much. Well, and that's I I wanted to come wind up there too as we get ready for the next segment, which is again we have this sort of weird approach avoidance attitude towards this subject, and um, you know most people know about the Donner Party. Uh, this is uh, 1846, a uh, mm-hmm. group of pioneers. They get caught uh, up in a pass, and, I mean, basically the story is that they did engage in survival cannibalism. I mean, what in, in general, I think when that happens among one's own people, the goal is to make it disappear, right? Or to say, oh, no, that didn't happen. Oh, like in China, they did that. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You're right. I mean, they try to incorporate themselves back into society as quickly as possible. And, and as far as the Donners went, not a lot of people wrote, not a lot of the survivors wrote anything about it. It came out of a couple of interviews. And there was really, there was very decent documentation that, that cannibalism happened at, at least in four different places um, with the Donners. You know, although over the last couple of years, the media threw a monkey wrench into that one uh, by releasing some kind of bogus information that came out of a, a, a valid scientific study saying cannibalism didn't take place. And everybody was really ready to jump on that bandwagon and accept the fact that these good Christians were, weren't really cannibals. Right. And I think the same thing is with Jamestown, too. It's maybe not a story that people particularly relish if they want to cling to the notion of American exceptionalism. Um, but on the, the other side of that coin is that if you want to get something onto the evening news, mm. if it has a cannibal angle, it goes to the top of the list, right? Absolutely. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, that happens with cannibalism in nature, too. The, the, you know, we've been dealing recently about this whole idea that, that uh, global climate change has turned polar bears into cannibals, when that's not a reality. And you know, the, the, the real story is more interesting than that. Uh, but that's not to say that the media forgot to mention that scientists have known for uh, over 100 years that, that bears will eat their young when, whenever they can get a hold of them. Right. So and they left that out because that wasn't the sexy part. The sexy part was, you know, that cannibalism was taking place, and then they added that on to um, global climate change, and they had their story. Right. So uh, our final segment is going to be about uh, uh, an interview with somebody who was depicted in the media that way. But mm-hmm. it's even the phrase that you just used. I know exactly what you mean by it, too, in that cannibalism is the sexy part, that somehow or other there's a little bit more to this story if it involves cannibalism. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. But why would that be? I mean, in some ways, it's this thing we don't want to hear about. We don't want to hear about it, particularly in connection with nice Western, you know, Judeo-Christian people just like us. But then we do suspect it somehow or I, I don't know. We're titillated by it somehow, too. Yeah, no doubt. And I think it's because it has become the ultimate taboo for a number of reasons. You know, I had a, a chapter in my book used to be called Blame It on the Greeks. And, and because I, I, I wondered, where did this taboo come from? And if you look back, it, it, it probably started with Homer and, and, and Polyphemus, the, the Cyclops, and then, and, and then moved to the Romans, and then William Shakespeare. Uh, to him, the, the, when you look at Titus Andronicus, the worst revenge that, that, that you can take on another person is to have, have them eat someone else, you know, eat a loved one. Um, and, and then move to the Brothers Grimm and, and, and Daniel Defoe. And there was this snowball effect that took place that, uh, to the point where now, and, and the early anthropologists thought the same thing. Um, you know, James Fraser came out and said that cannibalism was, uh, was prevalent all over the world. And then when the early anthropologists sort of followed him out into the field, that's what they expected to see. You know, they expected to see cannibalism in all of these groups, whether it happened or not. Um, and so now, uh, 2,000 years later, when, when we hear the word cannibalism, we have this knee-jerk reaction. And, and you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with this sort of Judeo-Christian belief about the, uh, the soul and the body being reunited on Judgment Day. And, and cannibalism implies that you're disarticulating and consuming the body, so, so that, that's not going to work down the road. Uh, and then we've always been picky about our food as well. Right. You know, what people eat is, has always been used to delineate outsiders and foreigners from us. Although, and we should say, it's not as though it doesn't happen, and sometimes it is connected to, to very comparable kinds of belief. I, beliefs. I can't remember which New uh, Guinea tribe gets kuru. Kuru is the disease. You, yeah, it's, the foray. It's, yeah, it's like Jakob Kreitzfeld syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you get that because you eat the brains of your deceased relatives. And, and the notion, I think, is you are somehow they're trying to preserve some aspect of them by eating their brains, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a typical funerary rite for, that was developed in a group that did not come across those Western taboos, and it happened in New Guinea, and it happened, uh, in, you know, in, in South America, and in, uh, in the Waray in Brazil, for example. They were just as mortified when they learned from anthropologists that the anthropologists would bury their dead. They were like, "How could you do that? How could you put your loved ones in the ground to rot and, and hang around and, and you know be eaten by worms? Why wouldn't you incorporate them into uh, into yourselves?" And so yeah, this is one type of cannibalism that, that I found to be extremely interesting, you know, and it, and it goes far beyond the, the knee-jerk reaction, lack of food or, or criminal uh, cannibalism, uh, which, you know, uh, that had been really been done 
a lot have been written about it. A lot of it sensationalized, and you know. So, so I, I, I thought that there was sort of a space in between the sensationalized works that had been out that are out there, and the academic works. And you know, I, I went for the middle and tried to be entertaining, not use too much terminology. Uh, not, you know, you know, not don't throw around a lot of scientific terms here. Uh, keep the jargon to a minimum. Maybe make it entertaining and and, and a bit humorous where possible. And I just found that there were so many interesting stories and so much about cannibalism that is just not generally known. Uh, And that was my book. And that's your book, which is Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. Bill Shutt has been our guest, a professor of biology at LIU Post, research associate of the American Museum of Natural History. Don't worry, you can bring the kids there. There's no cannibalism (laughs) diorama. All right, so we're going to take a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk to somebody who was accused of plotting and fantasizing about cannibalism. Because it's getting to the time that she will need to Cannibal has so much baggage. Maybe if they change the name to something like Anthrotarian. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea on A Bed of Kale and me, Kion Wolf. Executive producer Katie Tularski appeared in the intro and Amanda Fish has served poached with Amanda Fish Row. The part of Bill Curry was played by Johnny Depp. And now, back to Colin. So our final guest here today, and this is a uh, show produced as only Josh Nalea can produce a show. Our, our final guest today is Gil Valley. Gil Valley, former New York City police officer who spent 21 months in prison before being uh, exonerated and released. He's the author, the co-author of Raw Deal, the untold story of NYPD's cannibal cop, as he was known in the press. We were just talking about how the press likes to go wild uh, with stories that have uh, a cannibal element. So um, first of all, uh, Gil Valley, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Colin, for having me. Thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. And this is clearly a very comfortable uh, afternoon drive subject. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, well, it's it's uh, more familiar ground for you, and it's certainly you've been through the ringer on this. You uh, were sentenced to prison. The uh, verdict was eventually overturned, I think about 16 months uh, after the original verdict. Right. A circuit uh, court has since affirmed your acquittal in December of 2015, but... Um, Maybe we should begin at the beginning. Uh, how did you get in this mess? Well, uh, I was a teenager. I hit puberty, and I, I mean, this is all kind of explained, and the whole evolution of all this is outlined uh, in greater detail in the book. But mm-hmm. long story short, I found myself to be sort of aroused by images and videos of women tied up, women in bondage. Um, from there, there was a pornography website that catered to more cannibalism interests, and I started to incorporate the whole cannibal theme into the fantasies that I was having. Now, I never actually was into the actual eating of the person. It was more the woman tied up and being prepared for a feast or dinner or whatever. I was not really into the blood and gore stuff. Um, Other people that I role-played with were, but um, I understand why the moniker stuck with me and continues to stick with me today. 
So the problem was that you were on these online sites, these kind of dark web sites yes. where people talk about this stuff. It, it appeared that you were talking about not only your generalized interest in things like that, but your specific interest uh, in preparing, cooking, and maybe eating uh, your then wife uh, and, and, and maybe some other women too. Now, why, if in fact you, you don't really want to do stuff like that, why would you be talking to other people about it? Well, as you said, it was a fetish website. It was a fantasy website, and it's for people to explore sexual fantasies. Uh, all, I mean, the whole gamut of stuff on, on this website. Now, my fantasies are unusual. It, it, admittedly, they're, you know, people say they're deviant, abnormal. That, that's fine. But sexual fantasies typically involve people that you know in your life. When someone has a fantasy, they think about the hot girl at work or in her you know in your class or someone in your life so that part of the story isn't unusual but that's what scared people was the fact that the role plays and stories involved women that i knew in my life right so your problem was that the hot girl at work was 185 degrees um, right. And, and so, I mean, you did get, I mean, part of the problem for you at trial is that there were Google searches on how to prepare human meat, where to find huge cooking trays, how to cook a woman alive. Is that just, I, I don't know, one argument I, that I've seen or one way I've seen you quoted is in order to participate in these things and maybe even be a desirable participant in these fantasy, fetish, dark web sites, the, the more that you can kind of come up with details, the more interesting a conversational partner you are. Is that is that why you were looking up all this stuff? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, my role plays and stories, you know, I didn't. They, they started to get a little repetitive, and people enjoyed role playing with me because I focused on details, and I liked to. I'm a good writer, you know. I mean, the FBI thought that my stories were a real conspiracy, so, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I looked stuff up to sort of add new things to. Um, to these stories, and I'm finding myself sort of doing it again since uh, the first book. I'm taking a swing at a horror novel, and the things I'm researching are somewhat similar to the things I was researching back then, but now I'm doing it as part of a clearly fictional book, but um, it was no different from what I was doing back then, because it was always all fiction, and none of it was real. These were, quote-unquote, conspiratorial plans with screen names on the Internet. These were anonymous people I never knew who they were, where they were from. I never knew their names. There were never phone numbers exchanged. These were just people who I knew by their screen names. Um, right. These were fictional plots that were supposed to be taking place in a mountain house in Pennsylvania with human-sized ovens, human, you know, just all kinds of stuff that didn't exist. Right. So, I mean, it's like, yeah. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say, if you're writing a novel, I hope you get to go to a writer's conference. I would recommend Bread Loaf under the circumstances. Uh, I'll jot that down, okay. Obviously, write what you know. Um, but um, so, look, I, I think you, even better than our previous guest, Bill Shutt, could tell you tell people what it's like when the media gets hold of this. There was some way in which you know, Cannibal Cop just attached itself to you with crazy glue, right? And do, do, you, do you have a theory about, like, why, why was this such a compelling story compared to all the other wacky stuff that goes on in the world? Yeah, there's a lot of wacky stuff. There are police officers who get arrested. Um, you know, I don't want to say frequently, but it happens. But when my thing happened, the, you know, the whole Cannibal story really blew up, and the whole Cannibal Cop thing had sort of a ring to it. Um, if the FBI waited a month, I would have been promoted to sergeant, and I would have been the cannibal sergeant, but I don't think that sounds as good. Anyway, um, 
um, that's a, a stupid joke, but no alliteration. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, oddly enough, I was kind of shielded from everything when I was arrested because I was in solitary confinement. I didn't have access to anything. I didn't really grasp how big it was until I was let let out of prison, and I eventually read all the stuff that was written about me. And I think it's just the the sensational allegations. You know what I mean? I was this police officer who was going to abduct and cook women. And it just sort of blew up. And I think your previous guest hit on it. People hear the word cannibalism, and it's just it's like a whole new ballgame. Right. Um, you know, Gil, we have very little time left, but I, I do want to know. Okay, so first of all, you're basically in the clear there now, although there was some thought that it could conceivably go to the Supreme Court. Have you received any assurances one way or the other about this? The case is completely over. There's over. nothing okay. that's going to the Supreme Court. I'm completely exonerated, and I have uh, a couple of lawsuits in now. So what's life like? I mean, this isn't the—I mean, if unless you're going to— I mean, you're not really you're doing a show like this one. You're writing books about it and everything. Yeah. It's not you're not trying to make it go away. So I don't know. You meet somebody new. What's that like? It's complicated. When I was out of prison, I was worried, you know, OK, I'm out. I'm free. But how am I going to be received in society? What am I going to do for work again? You know, I couldn't go back to the police department. And my name is easily uh, people type my name into Google and boom, you know, there you go. All kinds of articles. So it was difficult. There was a lot of misinformation still out there. People were making up their minds about me based on myths that were presented early on in the case. And an HBO documentary came out. It wasn't close to what I was promised. So I was sort of pushed to finally get my story out. And you're right. uh, In writing the book, things sort of resurrected again. Um, But they're resurrecting in a different way now. I think people now are focusing on the legal parts of this case, it's a very important legal case. You know, when can someone be prosecuted for thoughts without actions? And uh, I'm happy about that. You know, although things are hectic again, like you said, uh, I'm doing these interviews, and it's sort of contrary to who I've always been. I've always been a private person. But uh, once my family and my support system sort of, they told me they would be okay with it, I went with the book, and People have received it very well. It's impacting people the right way. And like I said, people are now starting to focus on the important legal questions, which is what I wanted. You know, those sort of got lost early on because of the whole sensational cannibalism, you know, rhetoric about the case. I I hear you. Gil, we are flat out of time here. But Gil Valley, thank you so much for for talking to us. Co-author of his own story, Raw Deal, the untold story of NYPD's cannibal cop, Thanks to all of you who made it all the way through this show. I realize it you know, might have been tough sledding for some of you. Uh, and thanks to Josh and Leo for making the show happen. Thanks for Wolfie on the board, too. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for coming to Hannibal's and have a great night. Oh, and how was your service? Well, to be honest, our waiter wasn't very good. I mean, Stu, again.